You are listening to the Think Brick Australia podcast. Think Brick Australia represents the clay, brick and paver manufacturers of Australia. Brick by Brick, our podcast will discuss technical information and architectural case studies with special guests. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of Think Brick Australia. On today's podcast, we're welcoming from our friends over on the West Coast, Simon Pendle from Simon Pendle Architects. Welcome, Simon. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And Simon, you actually won this year's new entrant award, but you haven't really been a new entrant. You've actually been working with Brick for some time now. Yeah. Yeah. I think we flew under the radar there a bit because we won the um, About Face Award in 2008. And so <laughs> for, I was quite happy to fly under that particular radar. So <laughs> yeah, we've been involved um, with your organisation for a while, entering our own work also, but with student work, we ran a program at Curtin University over four or five years for the student competition where we quite delighted in consistently beating RMIT on a year-by-year basis. <laughs> so Simon, before we get into that, and that was obviously went under your practice of Pendle and Neil, but right. if we can just go back and you could just share with us a little bit about your childhood and growing up. Yeah, well, I, I can see on the question sheet here what inspired you to become an architect. So probably wrapping those things up uh, together. I'm, I'm a kid from the suburbs. I grew up on a suburban lot in a, in a suburban house, always playing in the streets, you know, lots of cricket and tennis and footy and skateboarding and whatever else we could get our hands on. But I did have a very close relationship with my grandfather and he was really a sort of a self-taught furniture maker. In preparing for today, I don't think I ever saw him physically make anything, but knowing that he did and seeing the things that he made intrigued me. I did go to his shed, but I wasn't allowed to touch anything because he was a very precise man. But also as a kid, I spent a lot of time making Lego and lots of plastic models of boats and ships and cars and tanks and you know that, that evolved. So, and that was thoroughly encouraged by my parents. And are we talking the suburbs of Perth here? Yeah, it was just South Perth, so it's not particularly on the outer suburbs. It's, you know, it's quite close to the river. But just that idyllic lifestyle of being a kid on a street with other mates that have bikes and we just went and did whatever we wanted and we'd come home for dinner. And there were no screens. (laughs) No screens, thank goodness. Lots of outdoors stuff. In fact, I get stir crazy if I have to spend all day at home on a weekend, I get stir crazy and need to leave and it's all part of being outside all the time. (laughs) Simon, when did you, outside of that influence of your grandfather's, when did you sort of decide that architecture may be the field for you? Well, I'm one of those pretty nerdy architects where it seemed to crystallise fairly early, I think probably around about 10 or 11 years of age. And that's just because I liked making things. I was always drawing plans of the house, models of the house, digging up the backyard and and making underground cubbies and lighting fires and all the rest of it. So there was something around inhabitation that was there from an early age. And so you decided that very early on and then you went through school and you ended up at which university? I was at Curtin University. So that was 1990. I arrived there and sort of in my years sort of nine and 10, I wasn't behaving particularly well at school and my parents started to think that maybe an apprenticeship was for me rather than university. Something clicked in year 11 and I just made the decision myself to start taking it seriously. 
and work towards that. So yeah, 1990, I was at Curtin University with fantastic teachers like Duncan Richards, who I still am in contact with. The same with Bill Busfield. They're now 80 plus, you know, brilliant educators and really understood the local scene and, and what we needed from them. There's certainly a cohort of West Australian architects and those names have come up regularly in all of these podcasts. But Simon, just thinking about university, was it what you were expecting from an architectural standpoint? No, not at all. I I still remember my first project, which was a studio run by another great educator, Peter Parkinson, who'd studied AI in London and was a larger-than-life character. He was a thespian, so he was extremely sort of flamboyant and energetic and I still remember the first thing he said to us on day one in first year was architecture is fun in a booming voice and I think he's right most most of the time sometimes it's not as any architect would know but I was kind of shocked with I thought I was there to make little houses and draw plans and so on and I was open this world of conceptual thinking was open to me and the breadth of what an architect could do and how they could think and the multitude of paths I could follow was actually a real shock. It took me quite a few years, two or three years, before I even remotely started to understand what that meant. Wow. And what happened when you finished um, at Curtin University? What did you decide to do then? I'd had enough, just felt really intense by the end of fourth year and wanted to travel and was told that was not on by my parents that finish it off. Thank goodness they'd said that. Had a fantastic fifth year I mean I felt like I had a great education there I was just tired it's not a reflection on the place ended up having a fantastic engaging fifth year beyond expectation and then took a rest so I really just spent the summer surfing and hanging out with mate my mates in driving around in cars and hanging out in sand dunes and that point a friend of mine and I decided we wanted to move to Sydney we wanted to get out of Perth so we moved to Sydney and went through lots of job interviews and I eventually got a job. Well, a short stint with Stephen Varity, who shared with Sam Marshall at the time, sort of a six-week little internship, which was good, and then picked up a job with Graham Yarn for, I don't know, 18 months, two years or something before I headed back to Perth. Just going back to that university, you said it was an exceptional final year. What were the things that made it so exceptional? Well, I think, again, there was great staff. There was people like uh, Richard Black, who was my final thesis supervisor, who I'm still friends with. Stephen Neal, who became my practice partner. And Stephen, I didn't click that much with Stephen when he was teaching. He, I then returned from Sydney and asked to teach with him, and he taught me how to teach, and that's where it started to click with him. But others, John Baker, who Stephen had brought in, Laurel Picari was there, Phil Vivian spent the semester there, he's now in Sydney, and... I think the school might have been, or the department might have been run by an American, a Texan, Joe Mashburn. And there was other people peripheral to that who were really um, contributing in a big way. And it was just, we had studios that were dedicated to ourselves so that we literally lived and breathed there. We slept there. We had stereos there and fridges. I mean, it was pretty feral, but we just didn't leave. And my mum insisted that I come home and cook them dinner so that at least I had responsibilities to come home occasionally. And Simon, when you came to Sydney for that period, what sort of stood out to you as the key differences between the East Coast and the West Coast? Well, Sydney was a lot bigger. The food was probably at the time, not so much now, but at the time was more cosmopolitan. You know, they were 
10 years ahead of us. I think sort of street food was a bit of a thing. And I hadn't, you know, we were still eating in restaurants here. I think I just met lots of people and, you know, being a young guy for the first time paying rent in a, an apartment between Bondi and Bellevue Hill, surfing a heck of a lot, working in an office that I enjoyed, being given a lot of responsibility by Graham. And it just, you know, with someone with quite a bit of energy, it just uh, all clicked. And then, so you were sort of saying you were here for around two years before deciding to go back? Yeah, something like that, 18 months, two years, yep. What motivated that move? I, I came back for personal reasons and was here for another few years working and teaching before I then moved off to London for a few years. And just now you've been in sort of some major cities and each one getting bigger as you move. What did you notice about London just from an architectural perspective? What did I think about London when I arrived? Well, it was, I think it was probably winter when I arrived. So the days were short, really short. And I'd saved what I thought was a truckload of money, which was going to carry me for a year as I travelled around. I was frugal. Turns out I wasn't frugal. And my now brother-in-law and I just hung out and went on adventures every day, blew all our money until I had to get a job. But, I mean, London was enormous. It was incomprehensible. There was so much to see. And eventually, once I did land a job, you know, the opportunities to see and do different things opened up because air travel was so cheap and it was so readily available. My partner, Rebecca, and I were going to Europe every four weeks for long weekend holidays. And the job I was doing, I was working at Allies and Morrison in London, which um, at that stage was 50 people. When I left, there were 150. So I got a lot of responsibility. I was taken under the wing by one of the directors, David, and the two partners, Bob and Graham. And it was just opportunity central. It was just so much going on. I was working hard and traveling a lot and uh, just loving the, the density of it all. How did London and that experience impact your future design work? Well, that's a really good question because an uncle of mine said to me, you're going to come back the same person, but you're going to come back changed. And this is a guy who I was very close to, and he'd spent, I think, 12 years at Oxford doing a medical degree and a PhD and some teaching and research. I thought, oh, I wonder what he means about that. And so I think the combination of working in an office that was doing um, good work, certainly allowing me to work on some of their best projects, I was very, very fortunate, but really travelling to see all of these works that we'd been looking at in our university years to be thoroughly disappointed by some that I thought I was going to be impressed by, absolutely impressed by some that I didn't think much of and everything in between. And so it really allowed me to jettison the things that I think were peripheral to my view of architecture and was attracted to certain kinds of works. And it really was a period where we were doing a lot of competitions after hours. I think we did 10 or 12 competitions after hours, which was really full on. But the combination of all of that is that we came back and I felt more set with a sort of a, a sort of a start of a position that I could take forward having done all of that. Yeah. And how long we, I mean, it's, it's is interesting when you think just the amount of information that is so readily available today. I mean, we're used to just getting instant photos on Instagram or anywhere else, but you know, there was a time where you had to look them up in an encyclopedia or wait for a textbook to be printed. And by that time, they were fairly 
archaic anyway. So it's, it's a really different world. I try to impress that on my children all the time. Well, it is. And so many of the great buildings that I thought nothing of until we visited and then was blown away by was because not because the photos, just because they were black and white, which they almost were in architecture books, but they were bad photographs. You know, they were usually very small rather than we'd see now beautiful black and white photos, full bleed on a page or a double page spread where you could really fall into them. And so lots of projects that I didn't expect anything from fell into that category because, yeah, the internet, email, I didn't have an email address until 1998. So this is, you know, before that. So visitation was everything. And Simon, can you share with us one of your favourite buildings during that time? I think there's lots, but probably the one that impressed itself on me most that affected work even to today's St Johnstone's Lincoln's in Fields project, which is his own house, which he slowly built over a 40-year period. It's basically a labyrinth. It's the most dense, complex, sophisticated interior I've ever seen. And I do enjoy that sense of immersion and um, discovery as you move from room to room. So how long was it overall you are in London for? Were you About three years, I think. Okay. Yeah. And then was there an impetus to get you to come back? or? Well, I was probably keen to stay another year to 18 months because a job that I'd been Project Arctic on had just started on site. My partner was... She'd had enough by that stage. She'd been there longer than me. And we just found that it was just time to come back. And, you know, we're both very close to our families. And I think my younger sister was about to have her first baby. So that was, you know, that was probably the the thing that pulled the trigger for me was to get over for that. And what happens when you come back? Shock. I honestly think I suffered clinical depression for about a year. I could not find my place. I was completely out to sea. I was a bit lost. And so that was a struggle. And in that process or in that time frame, I'd managed to get a job uh, back at Donaldson Award where I'd worked previously. That was a really intense workplace as well. And I was lucky in those few years to be Project Arctic on maybe seven or eight projects, quite small, one a bit bigger. So it was really good from an experience point of view and also just getting stuff built. And in the meantime, Beck and I had been looking for, well, what started is let's get a one-bedroom apartment, then it became a two-bedroom apartment, then maybe a little house. Eventually, we decided on a small block of land and we'd design our own house, which is what we did. And that was a moment of real catharsis and it allowed the travel and the education and the competition work and everything to kind of coalesce into a single place. And just having ownership of a project and authorship over a project that was ours, um, rather than someone else's that we were working on, was really, really important. And, yeah, it was just a fantastic experience. I mean, yeah. Simon, I mean, you mentioned when you came back, I mean, we all come back from overseas and you always get that bit of the down and dump sort of travel bug, but... Was it because the work was was different there or on such a larger scale from a professional perspective? I don't know. I think it was probably lots of things. I think it wasn't so much a dis- disappointment at coming back because I do love it here and increasingly so. I couldn't move now. I think I'd been given so much responsibility in London that to start again felt really difficult. 
Yeah. I'd been working on things that there was, it was unlikely that I was going to get those kinds of opportunities here. So I was job architect on Allies and Morrison's new office building that they now occupy in Southwark, just behind Tate Modern. So that was pretty damn good, you know. It was hard work, but it was an incredible opportunity. So it just felt, I think, like I was starting from scratch and really took the wind out of my sails. And then what sort of projects were you at when you were with back in Perth? What sort of projects? Well, luckily, because I knew Dick and Jeff, having worked there a couple of times and through their teaching at Curtin. So probably the main one that I think I might have started on was the new university club building at UWA. Mm-hmm. And my role, so Jonathan Lake was project architect. My role was basically to take care of the building envelope. So I really did enjoy that. It gave me a really focused, a, a large, but a focused scope of work to really get stuck into and enjoyed the detailing and spent a lot of time working with local fabricators to work out how we could do what we wanted to do. And other small projects, we did a little performance sort of stage support building on the Perth foreshore that's since been demolished because Elizabeth Keys on top of it. That was a fun building. And, and other similar buildings like that. There's some work at Christchurch Grammar School and some works for government departments and so on. Mm. And Simon, so was it from there that you decided to go out on your own? Yeah, it was. I mean, I think I'd always wondered whether I could do the business end of it, and I st- still wonder that. It just came to a point where I'd been at Donaldson Warren for a few years. I definitely felt I had the experience under my belt from all spheres of executing projects. I'd, be- I'd got myself registered. We'd built our house. And there was an opportunity to take up a half-time teaching role at Curtin on a one-year contract or two-year contract, probably one-year contract. And I'd been doing private work after hours. So I had two or three little clients and I thought, well, this is the time to go. I've been offered half-time work and I've got a few projects. So I went and bought myself a computer and sat at the dining room table and started a practice. And then what happened in 2008? 2008, so starting the practice 2005, spent a few years sort of defining what I wanted to do and building a few projects, a house in Mount Lawley, our own house, uh, a number that didn't go ahead. And then probably about the end of 2007, Stephen finished his PhD and said, look, you know, can I come and sit in your office? And I said, that sounds great. And within a week, he'd registered a business name, Pendle and Neil. And I thought, you cheeky bugger. Uh, <laughs> wow. And then he started making comments about, well, I don't think we should use PCs. We should use Macs. I'm, well, I'm saying to him, what do you mean we? You know, <laughs> this is my office systems. Anyway, it happened faster than anticipated. And we'd already done a number of competitions together. One up for an ideas competition in Cape Range National Park, which was really fun. And I think we'd just won a ideas competition to reimagine the front of Parliament House in Perth, Mm -hmm. thanks to Geoffrey London sort of seeing that we could make a short list that we were definitely outgunned on. And 2008, I think it was Gerard Reinmuth was the competition convener at the time. So he was going around choosing who he thought were the right people state by state. And he came over and he visited our house and he said, look, you should get these two jokers from Perth to be part of it. And we took that really, really seriously. I mean, we worked 
incredibly hard on it. We worked out half the detailing on it. It was a quite a formative project in defining our, in, our joint intentions as a practice. And, you know, Brick was a very natural fit for us. You know, we really understand Brick because we're from Perth and we like it as a material. And, and we went for broke. I think we, our project was a bit too full on. <laughs> Could have done with some editing, but it was really enjoyable and we were absolutely delighted to, to win. Yes. Surprise. But although we did have to share it with the M3 boys, so, you know, that's okay. Share. I'm not going to comment on that. Um, well, if we're going to share with anyone, I'd be them. That'd be, that was really nice. That was nice. Um, so, so in that time as Pendle and Neil, what was sort of the architectural philosophy, and then how was that a defining period for yourself? Well, I think all periods have their own different form of being defining. So, I think being at university was defining. Going to Sydney was defining. Going to Europe was defining starting a practice was defining and the Pendle and Neil period, which was about seven years, was defining because Stephen and I by that stage had known each other a long time. He had taught me in second year and fourth year. I had learnt how to teach from him for quite a few years under his studios, which it was absolutely foundational in that. And I guess we liked similar work. So work that was atmospheric, work that you know had a, an attitude towards a kind of beauty of projects that were, well, despite what the Think Brick project was, um, trying to do almost nothing. That was quite the opposite. That was trying to do everything at once. We would have conversations around the difference between thinking and feeling and the kinds of architects that fell into the two camps and where we sat. And it happened to be a time where I started my PhD, probably in the last year he and I were in practice together, and then that carried on for another three years. So all of that sort of, it, it merges one into the other and it's a foundational thing that builds and builds and builds. And we still um, communicate pretty regularly despite the fact he's now in Sydney. And I think we still have our own sort of innate language that he and I understand that probably, you know, you have that sort of intellectual partnership that it's hard to, for others to penetrate that and he and I can still have those conversations late into the night. And where do you sit in the thinking and feeling spectrum? Well, at the time, he said, we, we sit in the feeling spectrum. And I said, that's, yeah, I probably think that's true. Um, the PhD, I think, put that to rest and said, actually, I sit, I sit between thinking and feeling and I make an argument as to what that is and how it is. And to be really academic, I came down to, I think, that I think feeling. So it's about thinking, feeling and feeling. Okay. How academic is that? Splitting hairs. I mean, in that time, what would be one of your favourite projects together? That's a good question. I think we would be interesting to know Stephen's list. I think Parliament House was really good and quite defining. The About Face project was really fun and unencumbered by having to sort of worry about anything other than designing it. We did a, we renovated substantially a 1974 project home in the northern suburbs of Perth that most clients would have bulldozed and on arrival the client said look we don't think from a carbon footprint point of view that it's acceptable that we demolish a house like this can you do anything with it and we said well we think we could and that was a really I think a crystallization in many ways about what we'd been 
talking about and this idea of frugality and being responsible and ethical was to see what we could do with a building that was past its design life and we gave it another 30 years of design life and we completely transformed the interior. So that would be another one. But there's, there's a range of those kinds of projects, yep. And since Stephen's left, has the vision still remained the same with yourself or has there been some changes to that? I would say most of it's the same with new refinements and ideas emerging. I think that's any architect is always evolving their position. You know, the really great architects, like people I admire like Sigurd Leverens, he was still building in his 90s and was doing his most radical work in his 80s and 90s, his most, you know, extraordinary work. So there have been changes. I mean, I think that the time with Stephen was that the period that I call the plywood buildings, we were doing a lot with plywood and we were testing something again and again and we were refining that. That changed for two reasons, because simply we couldn't afford to use plywood in the projects anymore. So I took that in a particular direction using paint and colour. And, and also those projects were sort of reasonably sort of, they were very sort of explicit and tight, probably a little bit dogmatic. And I was looking for a little bit more freedom outside of that. And so that, that, that has evolved with, with the previous work as a foundation. So I guess if we were to talk now a little bit about bricks and obviously the About Face competition was, for those listeners that aren't aware, was a competition where architects were invited and you only had to conceptually design back then a building in brick. But throughout your career, you've designed quite a, and, and won architectural awards for a lot of your brick design. And obviously with Beaconsville House, you've received a high commendation in the Hobry Hunt residential category and then winning the new entrant category. Why brick for you outside of growing up in Perth? Well, I think it's one of those materials that most fully connects with being of the earth. You know, it hasn't been through a particularly large process of transformation. It's literally dig some clay, bake it, and it's almost in its original form. So there's a, a connection to sort of that, again, this thing of feeling, you know, being connected with the stuff that everything arises out of, which is, you know, the planet. So it feels grounded in our location. And I really like the spatial density of it. It's a really sort of dense material and used in a certain way. The Beaconsfield House in particular the brick makes it feel very quiet because it feels chamber-like and it feels, it has a kind of severity where a bit like the church has a kind of severity where everything becomes quiet. So I really like that. I like the fact that it takes a lot of human labour to make it. It's not pumped out of some sort of manufacturing process and is just sort of quickly screwed into place and that's it. It takes someone time and effort and there's a lot of craft. So, yeah, there's, there's many reasons. I mean, thermally, it performs very well as long as you disconnect it from the outside in Perth, you know, so reverse brick veneer and those sorts of, or as a, as a sort of a thermal mass. So it does all sorts of things concurrently. Simon, can you talk us through Beaconsfield House and maybe the brief for that project and, and how you came to design so beautifully in brick? Oh, thanks. So I'd like to acknowledge that that project started with Stephen when he was still in the office and that was 2008 and we got it to planning approval and it's, it went on hold for six years by which time he'd gone and it went through kind of a, a shrinking in size, a clarification, deletions, 
uh, a refinement, um, but still keeping the same original sort of intent intact. And then it, it moved forward, was uh, resubmitted for planning approval and uh, carried on to completion. So the clients came to us really via Stephen. Stephen had a close friendship and a public art practice with one of the clients. who's a very highly regarded artist, Yurik Wybranek, and his wife, Michelle Sharp. So they came to us to design something. Yurik had already sort of conceptualised something as a ready-made object plugged into the back of their workers' cottage. And as we went through that, we thought that that wasn't necessarily going to meet their needs. So their brief was simple. It was really just for an extra bedroom, a bathroom, you know, a, a, a tidy up of the kitchen, um, a living space. Not much at that point had been discussed about the original workers' cottage. So we went through that process. So the brief was very simple and we knew they are a very particular kind of client who we wanted to meet the level that they work at. So I went through lots of versions, uh, made lots of models, presented the first scheme and their initial response was a long pause. And then they said to us, that's great, guys, but it's just not odd enough, <laughs> at which point we thought we should bring our A game to the project. So we went back and kept working quite hard, made lots more models and at that point started to see that this thing could register the sun, could kind of connect with, you know, the passage of the sun and, and a sense of connection with site and landscape a bit more fully. And that's really where it started to evolve. And out of that, probably after Stephen had left and it had been refined a bit, we were having conversations around, wouldn't it be nice to have a really severe interior that you look out to a luscious garden? Wouldn't it be nice to do a house that had a cave-like presence? Wouldn't it be nice, you know, because that would make us feel in one way disconnected from the busyness of the world, but more connected with sort of the presence of the garden and the seasons and the life outside. And so I guess the other thing was that when Stephen left, I moved my office into Eurek's studio in Bibber Lake, which meant that I was renting a tiny room off him, but it meant I was seeing him every second or third day. And I would say, look, this is what I'm up to. What do you reckon? And he would be doing material sort of experiments in his studio about things we might play around with. So it was a process where I had a lot of contact with a client, an unusual amount of contact with a client, which I think was really enjoyable for all parties. And how long did construction take in the end? I was 18 months on site, which is about normal over here for something like that. And, you know, the builder worked pretty hard. It was a particularly wet winter, so laying bricks in the rain was you know, unbelievably slow. So but we had a fantastic bricklayer, Ben the Bricky. And so, yeah, 18 months. And Simon, did was there anything that you discovered in this project about bricks that was new? Not so much about bricks. I mean, I'd done enough brick projects other than, I mean, the, the, the final brick selection actually came as a, uh, out of the blue, the builder said, look, You've, we'd actually, I'd actually specified red recycled bricks, thinking that we were going to paint the building in some sort of lime wash paint inside and out. The builder came and said, look, I can get a $1,900 um, saving if you use these and pulled out these beautiful recycled salmon bricks from houses that would have been built in Perth in the 50s and 60s. Mm. And as soon as the client and I saw them, we, were, we just thought, oh, my goodness, these are stunning. And then the conversation around... Will we need to paint? Probably not. That saves a lot of money, saves a lot of resources. It amplifies a sense of a cave-like series of chambers and interiors. 
So probably didn't learn that much more about brick, but learned a lot about how subtle changes in a selection can unlock a project more fully and learning to kind of roll with chance on site, which up to that point I'd been resistant to do because, you know, you try to keep it all together, whereas it went with the flow a bit and it, and it paid off. I think my observation is that architects do try to lead the way in terms of sustainability and thinking about designing places and and what materials are used. Where do you sort of see architectural responsibility on that level? What's your opinion on that? Yeah, look, I mean, we're in a world that is rapidly reaching an apex of crisis point if we're not already over the apex and probably on the downward slope of that. And that, I think, goes through food production to politics to interpersonal relationships um, and all sorts of things. I mean, we just need to be doing a lot more with a lot less. I think we need to learn frugality and modesty and when enough is enough. And so rather than applying a sort of a sciencey view of sustainability, which really some architects enjoy, particularly the technology side of it, I prefer to keep things as simple as possible to sort of look at the sort of old models about how that's done and above all else, design things that will hopefully last, you know, 80 years, 100 years, 200 years, rather than things that will wear out and need replacement. Also, I think there's value in that, that I think there's an emotional value when you design in that way, people become more connected or they have the opportunity to become more connected with the world. I think that without being, you know, sort of dictatorial, the value of less, um, needing less and and slowing down uh, are all things that I think are fundamentally important. We try to instill in our buildings. And obviously you've been able to recycle brick in this particular one and and amplify those desires. Yeah, well, I mean, we're probably on our fourth or fifth recycled brick building at the moment. I'm not sure if that Beaconsfield's the first one. It's probably the, the major one, but we've got a house in South Perth where part of that is recycled brick, one in North Perth, which um, has more presence. The central room, which is disconnected from the environment as a heat sink, is very much like Beaconsfield, but is wrapped by a building that is not. It's using the same brick in the same way. So again, having the presence of that, but thermal performance and that it's recycled, we're doing a house extension in Peppermint Grove at the moment where we're using recycled bricks. So trying to cut down on stuff of the production of new stuff, obviously, you know, designing for climate is really important and making things efficient and using timber windows over, you know, manufactured steel or aluminium windows for various reasons. So we do try to take it on board at all levels in the, with the, within the limits that we've got within the practice. So, I mean, you've been a tr- tremendous supporter of the industry, not only in your own practice, but in educating young architects for several years. So thank you for being on the podcast. Before we leave, however, we do have some rapid fire questions. Reading the news, a newspaper or online? Online because I don't like wasting the paper. Handwriting or typing? I'm terrible at both and I do each for different reasons. For sketching ideas or concepts, would you use a pencil, pen or an e-pen? Definitely a pencil. And if I'm in my sketchbook, it's a 6B. And if I'm on my drawing board, it's a 2H or 3H. Do you like to read books or listen to audiobooks? I've never listened to an audiobook uh, and I read books nightly. 
What is important to you, style or substance? I like this one. I've, I'm going to be corny and say stylish substance. I like it. Coffee or tea? Uh, coffee in the morning, tea in the afternoon. TV shows or movies? I'm more of a documentary or lecture kind of guy. Okay. What's your favourite documentary? Probably various wildlife documentaries. David Attenborough would be amongst them. Yes. Or political, political documentaries I quite enjoy. I w- just a side note, I watched too many documentaries during COVID and I've turned almost vegan. So, yeah. <laughs> right. Antique or brand new? I don't know if I have an opinion one way or the other. Either or, depending on the circumstance. We haven't had that answer before. Call or text? Again, they each serve different roles. So for substance, a call, for just a quick arrangement, a text. Travel back in time or into the future? Well, that's easy. Travel back in time, pre-colonisation Australia. Exterior or interior? Uh, Exterior and interior and a bit between. Video games or board games? I detest video games, so I'll go with board games. Form or function? I don't even know how to answer this. I'd say neither or I'd say both and plus the missing ingredient. I want to give you a choice for complex or simple, but I'm not sure what your answer is going to be. I don't know. Let's say complex. Simon, thank you very much for always thinking brick and congratulations on your win in the 2021 Think Brick Awards. Thank you. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me on. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow, rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for new ways to think brick. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.